the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cheers the sweet land of liberty of the Arsene. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Oh, yes, indeed. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for being with us on Always Right Radio, AM 1420. The answer, it is a Friday, nine minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this 15th morning of the ninth month of the year of our Lord. And you should be very, very very thankful that right now you're not hearing this. Because I was very close. I was very close to saying that if I don't get a 46% pay raise, and if I don't get to reduce my workload by one-fourth and get paid for the same amount, that I wasn't coming in today. That might have been a little bit extreme. That's, <laughs> come on, right? Who the hell would possibly go to their bosses and say, give me nearly half as much as I'm making now on top of what I'm making now, nearly 50% higher wages. That means if, uh, if you're making, you know, say $50,000 a year, you want a roughly $25,000 a year pay raise to bump me to $75,000 a year. And, oh, by the way, 
that whole 40-hour work week, yeah, I'm working 32, but you're still paying me for the 40. That's what I want. If you don't if I don't get that then That could be the sound coming over your radio. That is the sound that is going to be emanating from the factories in Ohio and in Michigan uh to start and in uh Missouri. That's exactly how the auto plants are going to sound now. And why? Because the union, the UAW, one of the most powerful unions in America, has gone on strike against all three of the big American automakers at the same time for the first time in the union's history, for the first time ever. And what are their demands? 46% pay hike, 32-hour work weeks paid for 40 and a whole lot more. Roughly 150,000 American auto workers represented by the UAW and backed by pro-union Joe Biden and pro-union leaders and elected officials everywhere, they are willing to destroy America's economy. Ah, oh, don't be so overly dramatic, France. It's not going to destroy the whole economy. Okay. What do you think it's going to do to the cost of cars, your family vehicle, your work vehicle? What do you think it's going to do if the cost of labor goes from what it is now to 50% higher than that? 50%, not 5%. What was your last pay raise? Are you on a COLA situation with your, with your job? Cost of living increase only or cost of, uh, of living adjustment is what it's called. That's COLA. That's usually what around three, three and a half percent, whatever the rate of inf- uh, uh, the uh, rate of inflation is. So if you're on a cola situation, how would you feel about going from three percent increase in pay this year from last year to forty six percent? Be pretty good if you can get it, right? But if they get it, how does that impact every other cost in America, particularly because of your vehicle needs? That's what we're talking about here. We could go on and on, by the way, about some of the reckless, ridiculous decisions by the automakers. For example, Ford. Ford's investment in electric vehicles is enormous, and it is asinine. I have no love for the automakers themselves, particularly when they are pushing and being... I don't know if they're pushing or if they're being pushed... Maybe a little bit of a little bit of both, a little bit of push and pull here, but uh, into embracing this just absolutely horrific replacement of all gasoline-powered vehicles with electric-powered vehicles by 2035. They're the ones who are embracing this. It's ridiculous. It's stupid, and it's going to crush almost all of us. You do know how much more it costs, do you not? for electric vehicles than gas-powered vehicles, you do not know, I guarantee you, what happens after your new electric vehicle that they are going to uh, essentially push on everybody when they get five, six years old, right? The battery dies. The big lithium 
cobalt, manganese, nickel, graphite combination electric battery, it dies. And do you know what it costs to replace one of them? Somewhere in the neighborhood, depending on the model of car, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to seven to eight thousand dollars. Oftentimes, more than it would cost you, uh, or excuse me, more than your car is worth at that time. Depending on your mileage, depending on, again, the make and the model. Let me ask you, after you've owned your vehicle for five or six years, in other words, gotten it paid off, your car right now, let's say you took out a five-year loan, which is pretty standard, you had a 60 month, sixty months worth of car payments, you get to that 61st month and you're feeling good. Now, I don't have any more car payments for a while. And six months later, your EV battery reaches its end date, because that's what they do. And now they tell you, yep, yep, we can replace that for you. Yep, going to cost you about $8,500. You're going to take out a new loan on your car's new power source. Can you do that? That's what they're doing. So I have no love for what the automakers are doing, particularly Ford, which has embraced this, which I think is against all common sense and reality. It has nothing to do with the saving of the planet. If, if digging holes into the, into the earth to look for oil damages the planet, then digging holes into the earth to look for cobalt damages the planet. If fracking for natural gas, if mining for coal is bad for the planet than mining for all of those other rare earth minerals to build an extraordinarily impossible to comprehend number of, of batteries that it would take to, to replace the fleet that is on the American roadways, much less the rest of the rest of the world. You can't even imagine it. Aside from the fact that you know where most of those rare earth minerals are found? Not here. Not in North America. The overwhelming number of the deposits of those things are in Africa and in Asia. And we're going to have to pay them to send their little kids down there into those little tiny, thin, narrow veins to dig these things out. You did know that's who's doing this, right? There's so many things wrong with what the big three automakers are doing. I could point to Tesla and Will and anybody else who's already making EVs, but at least now we have a choice. We don't have to buy those things. Soon, they if they have their way, we will have to buy those things. And all of these things I'm talking about are going to come home to roost. We're going to have to rely on foreign countries for all of the materials needed to build the batteries. And, oh, by the way, do you know what powers the factories in which these batteries are built? Are you ready? You want a drum roll here? Coal. Coal. Fired plants will build the batteries that are supposed to make us not need fossil fuels anymore. And then, oh, by the way, once you get them to your garage and you plug them in, do you know where that electricity is going to come from? Drum roll, please. Yes, coal, natural gas, and a small amount of nuclear. The electricity grid that's going to allow all of us to plug our cars in at the same time when we get home from work at 5 o'clock, will crash. Oh, we'll have to shore up the electricity grid, yeah? 
If they could shore up the electricity grid that easily, they wouldn't have brownouts every summer in some of the hottest states in America because they can't even handle the air conditioners. So I'm getting a little bit off into the weeds on the EVs with the, but my point is I'm not sitting here defending the automakers because I think they are flawless. I think they are absolutely disastrous. But I will say this. The workers who work in those plants right now have an outsized expectation of their value. You see, their argument in this strike that just started last night, their argument is that we built America. We build these cars. The CEOs and the big honchos in the corner offices of the automakers are making record profits and record salaries. Well, we're the ones build the cars. Pay us record salaries. Give us 46% pay hikes. And give us 32-hour work weeks, but pay us for 40. They have an outsized estimation of their own worth and value. Because you know what? You know what it takes to rise through the ranks to get a degree in business, business management, economics, whatever it is, production, to rise to the level of what it takes to get in one of those corner offices, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. And for the management to build these corporations that hire hundreds of thousands, if not millions of American workers, it's something that is, that is not easy to achieve. It deserves a salary that is commensurate with the education and the massive amount of, of, of value that they generate for shareholders, which are everyday, average, ordinary, ordinary people like you. You probably have some of their stock in your 401k or your IRA. They have to manage all of those things, and it takes some skill to do that. And without disrespecting the hard work and the laborious nature of auto plant factory work, because it is hard work. I've worked in factories. I know. Do not get me wrong, but it's not exactly the most difficult of, of tasks to be able to achieve. In other words, tightening this on every unit that goes by you on the assembly line is laborious and hard. And God bless you, the blue-collar American worker. You are what it's all about. But know something, you are replaceable much more easily than somebody who is working in management. Somebody that is particularly, again, responsible for the future and the value of the companies. And making sure that the stockholders, which by the way are also members of the UAW, they they own stock. The jobs of the people who are in charge are so extraordinarily important, they are much, much, much uh, more difficult to replace. And I don't know if the UAW uh, uh, workers, because unions, by, by their very nature, well, that's not true. By their very nature, unions were a good idea to make sure that the working man doesn't get taken advantage of. That was a great reason to start unionizing. But when they realized that just making sure they weren't being taken advantage of could lead to massive amounts of power and thus corruption and thus 
holding the fate of the companies over a barrel until you got what you wanted, until greed and corruption ruined what it meant to be a union. Very, very different story. So now this union, the UAW, wants to grind America's car manufacturing to a halt, which, of course, is going to drive America to a halt because they aren't getting 46% pay raises. That's their demand. And 32-hour work weeks with 40 hours of pay. I am sorry, but you need a reality check. I support my neighbors. I support, like I said, my father was a union free. He was a roofer. It wasn't in a factory, but a hard blue-collar laborer. And I did a lot of those jobs as I was coming up. I worked in a radiator plant, dipping radiator core headers into 750-degree pots of molten lead to seal them. I know what it's like to work in a family, and I've worked on loading docks, too. It's hard, blue-collar work. And you'll never get anything but respect for me for the work that you do do. But I want you to have a realistic understanding of how replaceable you are. Because it could take anybody who can lift a core header and dip it into, into uh, 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 flux and, and then uh, uh, into, the, into the molten lead. A lot of people can turn the screw that you're turning on the line. Attach what you're attaching as you go to the line. Packaging what you're packaging in your spot on the line. A lot of people can do those things. Driving a tow motor is a skill, but it's one that can be learned fairly easily by a lot of people. I did it. I did it. 46%? 32 hours for for 40 hours of pay? I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to welcome this conversation today. It's going to have to take place in between some interviews, but uh, this is the top story of the morning. There's no question about that. Uh, I'm here despite my my, my near uh, decision to hold out for 46% increase in pay today. I didn't want you to turn on the radio at 9 o'clock in here. But, uh, you know, uh, I did what I had to do. Let's hope that these people come to their senses and do what they have to do as well. Before we take our first time out, and then we talk to Ohio's Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, who, by the way, as a Senate candidate, has some really good news coming his way in the way in, uh, in, uh, uh, in polls. We're going to talk to him about what he is doing to shore up uh, election security and integrity here in the state of Ohio. Getting rid of the Eric system is just a start. That conversation is coming up after the break. So before we take that break, let's say our pledge. Patriots, stand. Put your hand on your heart. Look at your flag if you have one nearby and join us. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 216-901-0945, the number to join us. you got thoughts on the strike. Whose uh, side are you on? We'll talk about it together. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France. And the answer. All right, 934. Welcome to this Friday edition of Free for All Friday. We will take your calls, but we do have some great guests uh, on the uh, docket today. Coming up here in about, uh, what are we looking at for uh, Will Witt? About a half an hour, at about 10.10, we're going to talk to Will Witt. We're going to talk to Mahek Cook from... um, 
uh, CCV and Protecting Women Ohio about the issue number one that is coming up in November, the extraordinarily important constitutional amendment that we have to defeat. And right now we welcome uh, somebody who's responsible in some ways for that issue. Uh, he is the Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, joining us now on AM 1420, The Answer, on a host of different topics. Secretary LaRose, good morning. Good to have you. Good morning, Bob. I was chuckling when you introduced this as Free for All Friday because it sounds like Lauren and, and me trying to get the girls out the door to school. That's a, <laughs> that's a Free for All Friday morning I, in our <laughs> I bet it is. I bet it is. So, Secretary LaRose, I'm going to read this, uh, your tweet from yesterday, and then I want you to tell us more about it. Ohio, once again, is leading the way on election integrity. It's very important. With today's announcement of agreements with Florida, West Virginia, and Virginia, Conversations are going on with are ongoing with other states that will hopefully soon join the effort. These agreements allow for the secure exchange of voter information that will keep our elections honest heading into the next presidential election. Now we all know that there have been a lot of great concerns about the Eric system, which is, I think, very unreliable and, uh, quite frankly, very ideologically slanted to the left. You have gotten rid of that in the state of Ohio. Can you tell everybody what that means? Yeah, and we're replacing it with something better, right? And that's kind of what leaders have to do uh, when you find that a certain system is broken. Ohio and many other states have been part of a system that started off with good intentions, I believe, 10 years ago, called ERIC, uh, or at least by many members. Uh, The intention was to be able to exchange data with other states so that we can detect multi-state voters. It happens rarely, but it does happen that somebody will attempt to vote in Ohio and maybe in another state where they own property or attend school, what have you. The only way to do that is to exchange data between states. This group had formed over a decade ago to do that. Unfortunately, it also had, um, as you mentioned, kind of an ideological bias built into it that when states found multi-state voters committing fraud, it was optional if they were to pursue law enforcement action. Of course, we always did, but in many liberal states, they didn't. But what was not optional is the requirement to find when there were unregistered voters who were eligible, it was mandatory that you reached out to those voters and tried to get them registered. So there was a built-in bias against uh, election integrity and in favor of voter registration, but that wasn't even the totality of the problems. There were also concerns about data integrity, uh, I had proposed for a long time that there be data integrity audits. They resisted that for over a year. There were vocal uh, partisan operatives that were serving as, as, as board members. On Eric. I thought that they needed to go. I, I worked to try to get them gone. I wanted there to be financial audits because the costs of this collaborative kept going up and up and up, and they resisted those calls for transparency. So after a year of trying to fix Eric, And when Eric resisted our efforts to try to repair it, we said, okay, we're leaving this. And a a bunch of other Republican states did as well. The simple fact is that we can exchange data between states. We don't need some unaccountable third entity out there operating as the intermediary. It's simply exchanging spreadsheets, if you will. And as long as we format the data uniformly, I can compare my voter rolls to Florida. And guess what? If somebody with the same first name, middle name, last name, and date of birth votes in both states, that's proof 
that that we should investigate further. I guess it's statistically possible that, that two voters exist with the same first, middle, and last name and date of birth, but it tells us that we need to dig a little deeper. So we've established this data sharing arrangement with a few other states, and many others are currently in discussion with us. And by the time the 2024 presidential election comes around, I think that we'll have uh, agreements like this in place with a bunch of other states. But the key is it keeps the states in charge and doesn't put some unaccountable third entity in the middle. Secretary LaRose, for the purpose of just conversation, um, is there a, is there a name for this agreement? Like Eric is, you know, electronic registration information system. What are we calling this new agreement? You know what? We need to come up with a name. That's what the marketers would tell. I was joking about calling it Erica, um, <laughs> but I was trying to like put America at the end or something. But no, we don't have a oh, name for it. Oh, okay. A- I apologize, but you know what I heard? I heard we went from Eric to Erica as if it transed. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I didn't so like that at all. Come up with a name. We're, we're calling it a, a you know multi-state data sharing collaborative. That's a, a bit of a cumbersome name. But uh, we'll come up okay. with something for you. Yeah, and, and I only ask that just because it makes it easier to talk about. Like I said, literally for the purpose sure. of conversation when people are discussing this this new system or this new agreement. So, um, so when when you say that you have the agreement in place with these states and hopefully many more to come, uh, is it as simple as pushing a button in Ohio or clicking a link in Ohio to see the voter rolls of another state? Uh, or is it, okay, I have to put out a request between from one state. We we have an agreement in place here. If I ask for information about this person, you have to provide it back to me. In other words, how cumbersome will this be or how easy will it be for one state to access the rolls in another? And is that secure? Yeah, so the security part is the reason why it has taken some time. Ohio has high standards for security. Now, I will say that the data that we're exchanging largely is already public information. You can go on the Secretary of State website and look up voter registration information. And so we're not sharing secure data or or personal information that could lead to, uh, you know, data, uh, you know, uh, identity theft or something like that for people. But we did want to make sure that the right cybersecurity protocols are in place uh, between states. And what this is intended to be is a streamlined operation where they can simply send a file to us, we can send a file to them, we can do the data match. And then the follow-on part is that agreement to work on the further investigation. Again, if I find somebody, if I find cause to believe that the same voter voted in Ohio and in Florida, before we can refer that to law enforcement and actually secure a prosecution, and let me be clear, I have referred over 600 individuals for prosecution in the five years that I've been Secretary of State, and that work will continue. But in order to refer something to law enforcement, we need to build a little bit more data than just first, middle, last name, and and date of birth. That's not enough for law enforcement to go on. And so the agreement is also that those states would work with us to gather greater uh, amounts of information. Uh, that's important information indeed. We're talking with Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose about the uh, getting rid of the uh, Eric's, Eric uh, system and replacing it with this new multi-state uh, agreement uh, to make sure that uh, the voter rolls are indeed uh, accurate and that, that election integrity can be insure, assured. Uh, I, I introduced you in talking about your role in what's happening in November. Uh, obviously, you uh, did indeed get the um, special election on the ballot in August, and of course it did not go the way many of us, including you, wanted it to. So here we are, I- issue one and issue mm-hmm. two. I want to get your thoughts on this now on November 7th. What are your expectations? Because issue one is is nothing less than a full-on um, 
referendum on parental rights, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, and the consequences could be devastating if parents cannot guide their children uh, when it comes to things like getting abortions and about uh, things like going through puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and, and starting a transition thing that can affect the rest of their lives. That's issue one. And the issue two is the first step on what I believe will be a multi-step uh, path toward legalization of drugs, not just weed, but beyond, if that goes through. Your thoughts on those two important issues on November 7. Yeah, first of all, the, the real shame of, uh, of us not being able to get issue one done is that the long-term impact of a 60% supermajority would have been the moderating influence that it would have had. Now, to be very candid, it would have kept fringe ideas from either the left or the right from being put in our Constitution. The idea had always been that if you want to do something as long-lasting as durable as amending our state constitution, you should be able to build a broad consensus. Of course, we were not successful with getting that done. And so here's what we have. On the ballot this November is the most extreme, not only, as you mentioned, abortion amendment in the country, but anti-parent amendment. It would take Ohio to the far extreme, take away parental involvement, open the door to gender transition. Uh, It's really a bad deal for Ohio. And even among our friends who may be, you know, maybe pro-choice kind of people, if they actually look at what's included in issue one, I think they will find it goes too far even for them. That's going to be the argument that we have to make over the next few months to show Ohioans that this is an extreme sort of East or West Coast solution uh, and, and, and puts Ohio uh, really in a bad place as it relates to parents' rights abortion, gender transition, all these other things. On issue two, uh, people should understand it's not simply legalization of marijuana. There is creation of a whole bunch of funds within the state budget and allocation of where money goes, the tax revenues from the sale of marijuana, things like the social justice fund or something like that 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 is meant to kind of spend the tax money that comes from the sale of, of marijuana for what sound like some pretty left-leaning causes. And so th- those are things that people should be aware of. Again, it's not simply abortion rights on the ballot with issue one, and it's not simply legalizing marijuana on the ballot with issue two. So people need to do their homework. We're talking with Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Uh, a lot of issues to get to here. I'm going to move right on to the next one. Thank you for that information on those. Um, what is going on with Ohio redistricting? Again, uh, we went through this, of course, three different times. The Supreme Court last year uh, uh, struck down the, the districts as they were drawn, saying they were unconstitutional. Eventually it was approved, and, and now we're at it again. And from what I understand, the redistricting commission can't even get the rules set right now The GOP on the GOP side that there's a leadership uh, battle going on there what's going on with redistricting and what can you expect what can we all expect from the outcome of this well i can tell you i've been on the phone all morning with uh you know the the various other folks that are part of this conversation and throughout the last couple days and my message has been clear we need to get this work done right away we have to have redistricting done i would say by the end of next week and the reason for that is there is bound to be or likely to be litigation on this. That takes a while. Once that's worked out, the boards of elections need to have about a month to reprogram their voter registration system so that each voter is in the right district. That's a very cumbersome process, a very sort of back-end administrative process of making sure that each individual voter is coded in the right district based on the new lines. That needs to be done in advance of candidates filing their petitions 
and those petitions are due on December 20th. And so whether you're running for state rep or state senate or Congress, any of these district lines need to be in place right now so that we can get that work done and have a orderly and smooth process for candidate filing, for getting the spring primary in place. And what's at jeopardy, if, if these guys continue to drag their feet, is that the state legislature may have to move the date of the primary. That would be a terrible outcome. That's a yeah. bad thing, a really bad thing. And I've been making sure that they know that. I do think that there's a bit of a turf battle going on between the House and the Senate right now. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the leaders of both of those chambers need to get in a room and work out their differences. And that's exactly what I've been encouraging them to do. Yeah, because that's the reporting that I'm reading on this, is that the GOP is infighting and, the, and that there are squabbles over leadership. And Lord only knows how this is, is this is going to go, because there were some I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> excuse me, uh, in, in the pre- previously drawn maps that were rejected there were some republicans who opposed the those those uh those maps anyway and we're talking about the the same maps that were rejected by the ohio supreme court which because they were too favored uh you know they were they were too tilted in favor of the republicans and there were some republicans who didn't even like that in other words are the state republicans both on the redistricting committee redistricting committee but also just in the state house are they on the same page or not well, they're not yet, and they've got you know varying different priorities. Uh, of course, members of the House are concerned about House districts. Members of the Senate are concerned about Senate districts. And individual members start to get pretty parochial about how their district looks. Uh, some members have you know oddball concerns, like they want a specific precinct in their district because that's where their mom and dad live or because that's where they grew up. And so people get really personal about this that's not what we should be thinking about we should not be thinking about sort of those individual parochial concerns of you know representative x or y needs to have this certain precinct because it has some emotional attachment to them we need to focus on the big picture here and again my first priority is that we need to well the first priority is we need to follow the constitution so that this survives court scrutiny but second we need to get this done quickly i don't think that we should be giving away uh, a bunch of things to the Democrats. They want to put, you know, Neither do I. Uh, Eric Holder in charge of our state. Yeah, house, that's that, and that's, that's not going to happen. That's a big part of this. I wanted to ask you, and, and I apologize, apologize for the interruption, but but just on that, I was going to say, how fine is the line, Secretary LaRose, between gerrymandering and drawing districts that are favorable to the majority party? Because the majority party is not a majority by a small margin. It's by a massive margin. And, in fact, in the yes. statewide elections that would that have been held, uh, you know, Republicans won nine out of nine races, and those are not district-driven. Those are statewide races. It is a Republican red state. So I, I want that to be reflected in the lines without it crossing over into what is obviously gerrymandering. So is how fine is that line as you see it? Well, let's be clear about something. The redistricting commission is seven members. The three swing votes, if you will, on the redistricting commission are the speaker. or sorry, the, 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 uh, the, the secretary of state, the governor and the auditor, because those are all elected statewide. It's not by coincidence that all three of those are Republicans. And so there's a reason why the voters of Ohio have put Republicans in a large majority on the redistricting commission. They expect us to pass lines that are, you know, consistent with that. And listen, I believe in competition. I think as a conservative competition makes us stronger. I want to see competitive districts where candidates have to get out there and compete for it. But we shouldn't be going into this conversation trying to create some advantage for the minority. That's for sure.
Yeah, I, that that's f- fair enough. Uh, Secretary LaRose, last thing now. This one's uh, of some importance to you. Uh, I'm looking at a survey, the most recent survey, and I'm trying to see the date. I know it's this month. Um, maybe you'll probably have it because you know what I'm going to ask you here. Uh, but you're yeah. looking good in the uh, in the Republican primary. Obviously, you're in a battle with Matt Dolan and Bernie Marino. Uh, according to the latest survey from uh, Causeway Solutions, I've got uh, LaRose at 27.5, Dolan at 17, and Marino at 12.2. So that's got to have you feeling good. What can you say about that uh, survey right now? Well, and that's been consistent. You're right. That survey, a large number of uh, likely registered voters uh, conducted over the last couple of weeks, and it has not changed really over the last several months. That has It's been that I've had a massive double-digit lead over the rest of the GOP field. Here's what it comes down to. Uh, this is not personal. This is about who's best equipped to beat Sherrod Brown and help us take back the U.S. Senate majority. Listen, I've got my differences with both Matt and Bernie. They're nice guys. It's not about that. It's about who has the strength statewide to take down a tough incumbent Democrat, who has the name ID, and who has a battle-tested conservative record of standing up and doing the right thing for the causes that we care about. I check every one of those boxes, and it's going to come time pretty soon that we get the party behind the candidate that can win, who's going to actually take down Sherrod Brown. Now, it's also, uh, here's an Old Testament uh, reference for you. I I may be Goliath in the polling, but when it comes to personal finances, (laughs) you know, uh, I'm David. Uh, But remember, David wins this with a couple stones, and so I'm busy gathering up stones right now, making sure that I can raise the money because I don't have the personal wealth to write my own check for the campaign. But I can tell you this, that thousands of Ohioans have been making small-dollar donations on franklinrose.com to to help me win this so that we can go forward and beat Sherrod Brown. Are there any polls that you know of uh, that show you specifically against Sherrod Brown, or is it just Sherrod Brown versus generic Republican who wins the primary? I can tell you the one that Sherrod is touting. And he is on social media. If you're unfortunate enough to follow him on Facebook or Twitter or any of the other social media platforms, he's been saying, I'm tied neck and neck with my GOP opponent. He'll never mention my name, but he says, I'm tied neck and neck with my GOP opponent. That's me. The poll that he is sharing with donors says that we're tied 44-44 with the remaining undecided. I'm the only one uh, who shows up with those kind of numbers. And again, that's why the Democrats are coming after me. The enemy of my enemy is my friends, folks. The ODP has attacked me 30 times just in the last last couple of weeks, and they've never mentioned the other two GOP opponents because the Democrats know who is the most dangerous weapon against their hero, St. Sherrod the Magnificent of Cleveland. They know I can take him down, and that's why they're trying to cut me down. Last question for you. This one has nothing to do well. I take that back. If you go to the United States Senate, this is going to affect everybody. So uh, your th- thoughts on last night's strike, the start of the UAW strike against the Big Three. Um, obviously, Ohio is a strong union state for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I know a lot of people who are pro-union who are not supportive of what is happening right here because of the ramifications on the overall economy and particularly on the auto industry. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, UAW strike? Yeah, it's not just the big three. It's all of these other suppliers, which is a lot of small businesses in Ohio that I've talked to. I was talking to a manufacturer in Akron just the other day who's worried that he's going to have to shut down his production line because if he doesn't have auto manufacturers to sell to, he can't continue producing products. And so uh, they need to work this out. 
I understand that there's a point to be made for people to be able to bargain for, 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 for good wages and that kind of thing. But the UAW needs to make sure they don't also kill the golden goose because when you do, it stops laying eggs. And if what we're doing is hurting American auto manufacturers and their suppliers, it's going to benefit foreign auto manufacturers. So the UAW, yeah, they need to fight for their, their members, but they also need to be pragmatic about this, and they cannot kill these great American companies in the process. And I hope they're, they're cognizant of what this is going to do to the cost of cars. Uh, I mean, I mean, for America, there are family cars, our, our work vehicles, and so on and so forth. We can't see a 20% hike in the cost of vehicles again. Uh, and that's what I think is going to happen here. If they, if this strike is prolonged and if they force the, uh, the, the, the manufacturers to give up as, you know, at least close to what they are asking for, 46% pay hikes and, and, uh, you know, 32 hour work weeks, but paid for 40. What's that going to do to the price of a car? What's that going to do? the American economy. Here's something else worth mentioning. The people that claim that the fighters for the working class, people like Joe Biden and people like Sharon Brown, they are at part responsible for bringing this about by putting these egregious electric car mandates in place, these unattainable electric car exactly. mandates in place. They're driving manufacturing offshore and hurting UAW members. UAW members are responding in part by striking, and so Joe Biden and Sharon Brown are complicit when it comes to this matter, 100%. Completely agree. I was making that link a little bit earlier on in the hour. Secretary of State Frank LaRose, uh, it's a busy uh, busy day you've got. It's a, it's a full plate that you're dealing with between the uh, elections coming up, election integrity, uh, and obviously your own Senate race. So thanks for coming on. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. There you go. That's Secretary Frank LaRose. It's 9.56. We're going to take a time out. we got a top-of-the-hour news break. We're going to talk to Will Witt coming up next. Always right radio. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Alrighty, hour number two underway now, seven minutes past 10 o'clock on this free for all Friday, the 15th morning of the ninth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks again to Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Great stuff there. We're going to talk more coming up in about a half an hour. We're going to talk about the... Um, Issue one, uh, which is the, the constitutional amendment to end parents' rights in the state of Ohio when it comes to their kids making life-altering and, indeed, life-taking decisions. You know the story by now. I want to welcome now to the program, though, uh, Will Witt. Will Witt is also known, according to his Twitter profile, as Will Not Comply With, which I think is very witty. That's awesome. He's the editor-in-chief of the left sta- the uh, Florida Standard. He's a best-selling author. He is an international speaker. You may have seen a video or two of his on Prager University, and his new book is Do Not Comply, hence the new Twitter handle. Will Witt, thank you for joining us here in Cleveland. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? I love how you used your first name in there. That's just a great play on words. Will not comply. It ties in perfectly with the title, and it's. Uh, I think it's a feeling all of us share, Will. Yeah, i got to thank my mom for the, the great name, for making it so I could have great marketing when I got older. Who would have <laughs> known? But it, it's funny that a lot of people, when I was talking about the original title, Do Not Comply, the book about a year ago, all sorts of people questioned it and said, well, is that still going to be relevant? Are people still going to be talking about it? And very much so. It's probably actually more relevant than ever. Do not comply. 
No question about it. Do not comply with the subtitle in the O of do, taking power back from America's corrupt elite. We're going to talk about who America's corrupt elite is in a moment, but since you brought it up, how long did it take you to write this book? When did this start? Uh, It started about a year ago, but I really wrote the book in just about a three-month period. So a lot of it was just planning ideas and, and figuring out exactly what I wanted to do. For me, I've been in this political world for about eight years now, and this book to me feels like a culmination of everything I've learned, everything I want to share with people, and really what I think is kind of the antidote to the place that we are at in America right now. I see so many things going wrong, but I see such a, a chance for heroes to emerge in this in this space with the right knowledge and, and, and godly love. And I think if we can do that, then we can really change this country. Will Witt is on Twitter at the Will Witt, the Will Witt. Uh, and you said you've been in the political world for eight years. What brought you in? I was in college, and I was a leftist atheist my entire life. And then I remember going into my sociology class, and I went to a a fairly diverse high school, you could say, and I was still a leftist atheist then. But in my college in in Colorado, my TA in the class, my teacher, she pointed at a black girl next to me. This was in sociology, and she said, you are oppressing this girl because of the color of your skin. And to me, that didn't seem to make any sense. Me and this girl looked at each other like this is very awkward and weird, And neither of us felt like she was being oppressed or I was an oppressor, but that's how these people at these universities work. And so I started to question a lot, started to research a lot, and eventually found out about Turning Point USA, PragerU, and and worked for PragerU in L.A., long story short, for the the last six years in in Los Angeles. So um, go back to that again. Um, You don't have to say what school, but it's in Florida. I assume you're from Florida? No, no, this was University of Colorado. Oh, this is University of Colorado. Colorado. Oh, sorry, uh-huh. sorry. Okay, well, that's that's a different state altogether, a different type of state in, in, in yeah. as well. Um, but but Florida. The reason I brought it up and I thought it was connected to Florida is because um, you know what what's going on there. Um, governor DeSantis has taken the lead, I think, probably over any and every other governor with respect to fighting back against what you experienced in that moment. The the telling of little white kids that they're oppressing little black kids and telling little black kids that they will never get a fair shake because of those white kids. That's the nature of. Mar- Marxist critical theory, and in this case, critical race theory, he is wiping that out. And I wonder how much that has shaped what you are and what you've become. Oh, very much so. I mean, there was just came out today in in Florida news that Florida public universities moved to get rid of reports such as race and sex and student enrollment. That is a huge deal. There are things being done in the state of Florida that are being done nowhere else in the nation. Governor Ron DeSantis, I think, has done a great job. Uh, Part of the reason why I moved out to Florida was because of his leadership and and what he's done. Uh, I think that, like, if you look at the legislative session that just happened this spring, I mean, getting rid of trans surgeries for minors, a heartbeat bill for abortion, concealed carry in the state, all sorts of very conservative agenda items that the Florida legislature hit this last session that shows that Florida is here to stay as a red state. We're no longer contested. The Democrats and Republicans are both taking out a not spending nearly as much money in this state because they know that it's pretty heartedly red now. Yeah, that's uh, that's very well said, and uh, he has taken that lead. Like I said, seeing that you are the editor of the Florida Standard, I kind of thought you were there the whole time. What's the Florida Standard? Is that something you started? Yes, the Florida Standard is a news outlet here in Florida. If you were to come to Florida as a conservative and see the biggest news stations here, the biggest newspapers, you would have the Tampa Bay Times, you would have the Orlando Sentinel, Miami Herald. 
These are leftist institutions. I mean, you look at the things that they're reporting. They're no friends of the governor. They're no friends of conservatism. They're no friends of, of God and the church. And so I came in and said, listen, this is a conservative state now. This is a red state. Why doesn't the news in this state reflect what people are really thinking? And so that's why I started the Florida Standard, moved out of L.A., uh, left PragerU to get out on my own and start this news outlet here in Tampa. We're talking to Will Witt. His book is Do Not Comply, Taking Power Back from America's Corrupt Elite. Let's talk about that. How do you define and how? where will we find America's corrupt elite? Are we talking about the D.C. swamp, or is it corporate America, or is it some combination thereof? Yeah, I mean, it's a complete combination of all of these things. You can tell who the elites are if they have an agenda of turning you into a slave. And that is what all of these people want to do. We don't live in a uh, democracy that our, our founding fathers envisioned for us. We live in an oligarchy now where we don't even know the slavery that that we are under, right? That's what makes it so scary. It's like a brave new world where we believe we are free because we have all this easy life and, and comforts that we've never had throughout human history, but really we are kind of this new high-tech surf class to these, these corporate and government overlords, the teachers' unions, uh, big pharma, big media, um, the America's financial institutions, the lobbying machine in, in D.C., the revolving door with the military-industrial complex, the senators and, and congressmen. I mean, it really is all of these people who, at their core, really don't care about you as a person. They don't care about your humanity, and they don't care about you flour- flourishing as an individual. They want you to be a part of some group. And, and this book saying Do Not Comply is about more than just not complying with COVID mandates. It's about not complying with any of these people who want to turn you into a slave. Yeah, and um, I'm glad you brought up COVID because, of course, that's the first thing people think. As a matter of fact, my um, my Facebook cover page right now, the background photo is is just a great big uh, do not comply. Or, I'm sorry, we will not comply. Beg your pardon. We will not comply. Uh, and so we just think about that because, you know, the FDA just rolled out new poison darts. Uh, they're going to yep. back. There's already a start to um, new mask mandates, and Lord only knows where it's going to go this time. So we think about we will not comply. We demand our uh, medical freedom to make up our own decisions about what goes into our body and we're not going to be pressured or forced to do this but that's exactly what they did and for people will who might look at your language or hear you talking about slavery and saying that's a little bit extreme that's a little melodramatic it's not really if you don't have the freedom to make up your own decisions to say the things that you want to say uh and and to work without being uh you know canceled for having having a viewpoint then that's different than somebody else's it, it is a form of slavery well, yeah. I mean, if you have the hubris of this new New Mexico governor who came and said, we're going to make uh, an emergency declaration to get rid of your Second Amendment rights, basically, in the state of New Mexico, that is becoming a slave. If the government has the right to take away any of your rights, what, where is the moral line to say they can't take away everything? If the government can tax you 5%, where is the line that says they can't tax you 10%? 20%, 50%, 100%. There is no moral line. If you give away any of your freedom at all, then you are essentially becoming a slave to somebody else. That is how this works, unfortunately. And yes, it is somewhat harsh, but I, I want people to look at the place that we are in as Americans, the way our lives are. I mean, we have, for people my age, I'm 27, we have the most anxious, depressed, and lonely generation ever. They're not buying homes. They're not getting married. They're not having jobs that are fulfilling for them. They're moving to some big urban city and working some some email marketing job. There's no heroism or courage or bravery within these people. And so even though we have air-conditioned houses and we can access political ideas anytime we want, 
that does not mean that you are free. You are not free if, if your main concern is being a part of some, some group or being controlled by some elitist who wants you to do their bidding. And so I urge everyone with not complying is to not comply with these people who want to take away your freedom and your inalienable rights given to you by God. That's the most important thing. These rights are given to you by God. God wants Americans to be free. It's about time we all start to realize that. We're talking to Will Witt. He is a media uh, a personality, a journalist, uh, an online influencer, he, and he is an author. His book is Do Not Comply, Taking Power Back from America's Corrupt Elite. Um, you said you grew up as, a, as an atheist, and now you're talking about all of these rights and power given to us by God. When were your eyes opened? So I got baptized about two and a half years ago in Hermosa Beach, California, in the ocean, which is like old Pastor Jack Hibbs, if any of you guys are familiar, Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. He refused to, to close his doors during COVID. He's truly a remarkable, amazing man. And it started during COVID when I actually decided, you know, I don't know what I think about all this, but I want to read the Bible. So I ordered the Bible, and I read the four Gospels, and I said, well, if this is really true, what is in this, these works, then I have to make a choice right here and now. I can either believe that it's lies, I can ignore it, or I can believe that is the truth. And I believe that it was true, everything that was within those pages. And if those pages are true, then you only have one choice, and that is to give your life to Jesus Christ. And so that's what I did. And also in in the book, Do Not Comply, my longest chapter in the book is called God Save America. And it talks about all where my own personal journey through this and things that I've never shared in in person with, with the world about why I was such a strong atheist before and, and why I'm now a very staunch Christian, and and how we can use God and how God will be the one to save this country. Well, you used, uh, that's a great story, by the way, and, and, and an amazing one, and I hope it's inspirational to other people uh, who may or may not necessarily have faith yet um, that it can be found. Um, you used the, the New Mexico governor as an example of one of the ruling elites attempting to enslave us. Do you take solace in the fact, or, or, or do you find hope in the fact that she was roundly condemned by everybody, including the left, including the ACLU, left-wing judges? You know, people uh, from all over the political spectrum said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, even those on the left who are gun control freaks who uh, want to limit the Second Amendment rights, they said, that's too far. You literally just, you know, tr- you know st- stomped all over the Constitution. Do we take any hope in that? I think you can take a little bit of hope, but, you know, don't don't totally quote me on this, but I'm sure that the the first people who ever said that climate change was going to destroy the world and, and uh, that this trans movement is the most important thing in the world were probably laughed at a little bit at the beginning. But as soon as these things start to take a foothold, you're going to see more and more of things like this. So it's easy for us to be complacent and kind of say, oh, well, this lady is ridiculous and, and I can't believe she would say this. And all these people come out and condemn her. But the left, they, they push over and over and over again and will not stop with just one person. They will continue to push things like this until you have all of your rights taken away because this is exactly what they want. They want complete dominion over your life as an American. It's not about hypocrisy or, or facts or any of these. It's about power. However, they can use power to, to make you that slave that we talked about is exactly what they're going to do. So although we had people call her out now and say, you know, this is ridiculous, it worries me that we even have politicians in this country with the, the, the hubris to even say that. 
Will Witt is our guest. Will, let's uh, wrap our conversation by going back to the start of our conversation, and you were telling me about what made you leave the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, this things are still the same at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I know that because it's an American university, and it is the pretty much yeah. the same at all of them, maybe with the exception of Hillsdale, uh, Grove City, and a, and a very select handful of other colleges that are truly uh, uh, opposed to and fighting back and pushing back against indoctrination and actually embracing the concepts of education. Um, I find no hope here. I find no hope for... Uh, you know, I don't know, tamping down the uh, overarching authority of the university elites. They seem to have us under their thumb. Uh, still too many Americans think that their kids have to go to college if they have a chance in this world. And so they're putting them in these places, and then they don't recognize them when they come out. They have no earthly idea who they are because that's not the kid that they raised. Give me some reason, how do we say we will not comply, or in the title of your book, do not comply, when it comes to the power that the universities have? Well, I think that businesses, first of all, need to stop giving these universities so much power. I think they need to stop saying that you can't work here unless you have a a degree from some university where you went for four years and basically got an addiction to alcohol and engaged in every single vice imaginable and learned how to be a communist. The fact that we have so many businesses who are coming and saying, well, you have to have a degree to do these kind of things is is very reminiscent to uh, de Tocqueville, if you know Democracy in America, where he talked about soft despotism. Soft despotism is essentially the idea that our world and America gets so crowded with bureaucracy that the people no longer recognize essentially how they're really supposed to live, how they're really supposed to be free. That's with this this licensing. That's with HR departments. That's with college degrees. We need businesses and organizations to start coming and saying, no, that's not the case. And then we need young people and parents to start saying there are alternatives to university and telling people that they shouldn't go to university. I would never I would never send my my kid to university. I dropped out of school. And I think it's a lousy idea to go to one of these places where you pay $100,000 to get indoctrinated and become an immoral slave to, to the daycare that you sent to. So I'm very much against it, and I think that we need to be stronger to our children when we're talking to them, as well as the businesses need to be, I guess, more lenient, you could say, on who they accept. You can learn things on the job. You can learn things from mentors. You don't need some college degree that teaches you nothing to get a job. There, there are, and you were right on. I think at the very beginning when you talked about businesses being at the center of this, because so many businesses, corporations, and employers require degrees for certain things. And and I know this for a fact. My my wife in her her field of work, um, you know, these are all degreed positions. And the funny part about it is. It doesn't have to be in that field. Just if you have a degree, you can have a degree in general studies from America U, and uh, fine, as long as you've got a degree, you know, with those, uh, with that after your name, you can get this job. And so there's a lot of parents who, and a lot of kids who feel like if I want to get a job that doesn't have me turning a wrench or doesn't have me knee deep in sludge and doing blue collar work, I have to get that degree. And so away we go, and the and the cycle begins. Yeah, unfortunately, but, you know, a lot of things that I know from my generation, or maybe the older generation doesn't get, but is actually very important, is that these universities have become not just indoctrination centers, not just waste of money, they are places where young people can go and engage in this brave new world that I was talking about. It is every vice, every immorality that you would like is at these universities. They are Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, they're, they're very unchristian like places, and and this is why young people, a lot of them, want to go to these places. They want to go to the parties, they want to drink, they want to do drugs, they want to engage in all sorts of sexual activity, and because that's fun, that's 
what they deem as the most important thing in their lives. But if these young people today lack a complete uh, misunderstanding of meaning and purpose, then they're going to view these things as incredibly important. The fact that they can shotgun a beer faster than someone else is more important to them than living a godly life. Well, that's and that's why really this, sad. Yeah, that's why this idea of free college for all and forgiving student loans is so just uh, unbelievable. Because if you if you literally make college free for everybody, every 18-year-old graduate of high school is going to go to college and play beer pong for two years or so before they drop out uh, because it's not going to cost them anything. And they're just going to engage in all of these things, like you said, that delay the start of responsible contributions to society by becoming employed and starting a family and so forth. So it really is... Uh, it's, it's as bad as you describe it. Sodom and Gomorrah is not an overstatement, in my view. Will Witt no. is the author of Do Not Comply, Taking Power Back from America's Corrupt Elite. It looks like a phenomenal read. You know you have seen Will and heard his quick wit. Again, sorry for the play on words. On uh, on uh, uh, PragerU videos and more, you should check those out and follow Will on Twitter at the Will Witt. The Will Witt. Will, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on the book. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. God bless you, man. God bless you, too. Thank you, Will. That's Will Witt. Uh, well, it's 1026. We're going to take a time out. We're going to come back. We're going to talk with Mehek Cook from uh, PWO, Protecting Women Ohio. And we're and uh, uh, I think Senator Christopher Christian Virtue as well uh, is, is who she's with. But at any rate, she is going to explain to us the extraordinary importance of voting against Issue 1 on November 7th. Issue 1 is devastating, and it will be devastating to the state of Ohio and you personally. And we'll talk about why next. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, 1035. We continue on this Friday at... uh, you know, I'm just reading some of the uh, language in some of the advertisements uh, that have been put out by Pro-Choice Ohio uh, in support of Issue 1, the constitutional amendment to make abortion until literally the moment of birth um, legal, uh, abortion on demand, not because of health reasons, but for any reason whatsoever at any point in the pregnancy. And I'm looking at some of their arguments uh, in support of this. And I'm also looking at their arguments in opposition to parents having a say. And I'm just blown away that we are literally one election away from having that be life in the United States or in or excuse me, in the state of Ohio, I beg your pardon, uh, or in the uh, in the uh, the reverse view death, because that's exactly what what this would bring about. We could very well see a drastic change in the culture of life and death in the state of Ohio if we allow issue one to pass on November 7th. Um, we have just begun, really, and and I hope it's not late already, but we have just begun a strong push against issue one. We tried very, very hard to get the issue passed in the special election on August 8th that would raise the threshold to change the Constitution to 60%, but we failed. And I think the effort started a little bit too late, and it was a little bit too light, quite frankly, to get that passed. And so now it's a simple 50% plus one voter. If half of the state says kill babies on demand and allow children to start transitioning their sex without parental input and involvement, if half the state says do that and just one voter, one voter, uh, you know, if half the state says do it and one half the state says don't do it, one voter can tip that the other direction now. That's the, the hand we've been dealt here. Then that's what life is going to look like in the state of Ohio. 
It's not the kind of state I want to live in, quite frankly. And I know that's how they feel at Protect Women Ohio as well. Joining us now is the spokesperson for Protect Women Ohio against Issue 1 on November 7th, Mehek Cook, back on AM 1420, The Answer with us. Mehek, good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And that was a great recap. This is truly between life and death today. It is. It is. I, I just, I'm, I'm just blown away that a state that is, I think, has been so reliably supportive of pro-life issues for so long. I mean, we have one of the strongest pro-life uh, laws in the country in the in the heartbeat law. Um, and I'm just blown away that we are just a couple of months away from watching that all go by the wayside and, uh, and parents won't even be able to stop their, their children, you know, their teenage girls who may have become pregnant, uh, unplanned and unwanted. Um, they won't even have a say in this, Mahek. And it just seems like that's not the state that I know. That's not the state that I believe we are. It is not the state that we are. And part of this, Bob, is a lot of misinformation out there. Everybody thinks this is about abortion. And let me be clear, this is about much, much more. This is the anti-parent amendment. It attacks parental rights so that a child can go through not only full-term abortions, but transgender surgeries, receiving cross-sex therapy hormones. This is not acceptable. We do have laws on the books. If people truly turn to the legislature, we have abortion laws today. If you want to work on abortion, let's go. Roll up our sleeves, get to the legislature. But you cannot diminish parental rights. It's already happened in Michigan. Just our state up north, we saw that they not only passed a, a constitutional amendment like this, but now they are eviscerating every health and safety standard. They're getting rid of parental consent for anyone of, under 18, removing the 24-hour waiting period, removing the requirement that doctors can perform abortions. That's what's in store for Ohio next. If this amendment passes, we no longer have consent over our children going through basically gender mutilation. We don't have consent over our children going through on-demand abortions, and we have lost what life means in the state of Ohio Mehek Cook is our guest. She is a spokesperson for Protect Women Ohio, fighting to protect the unborn, the pre-born, and, uh, and the women uh, who, uh, who need it. Mehek, in Michigan, I'm seeing a lot of language um, in, uh, from Protect Women Ohio and other pro-life groups. Uh, they're talking about what happened in Michigan happening down here. Can you tell everybody what happened in Michigan and what we're talking about here? Yeah, so in Michigan... The voters passed a reproductive amendment very similar to the packaging here in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And now you have the state legislature going after every single health and safety requirement that these constituents have. A legislature has just put a bill up to get rid of parental consent, removing the 24-hour waiting period, removing the requirement that doctors can perform surgeries. I mean, the list goes on. They are trying to get rid of all parental rights and all abortion safeguards. It is specifically designed, and they're not hiding it anymore. Parents don't matter when it comes to critical life decisions. It's happening in Michigan one state over. The ACLU has a large hand in it. They're dictating what we can do with our children. 
And make no mistake, her amendment in Ohio is much more extreme than what was passed in Michigan. It specifically does not allow for parental consent. It specifically uses the word individual instead of woman. It specifically does not allow for health care standards. So all the protections in Ohio law will be seen as a burden and no longer exist. Parents are seen as a burden if this were to pass. So it's extremely appalling. And for anybody to say this is not about a child transitioning, let me tell you the largest transgender activist group, Human Rights Campaign, openly endorsed issue one, pushing and stating our members support Ohio alongside local advocates for comprehensive medical care, which means transgender surgeries, puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones. We don't have to be more clear than this, guys. We're under attack. There's no question about it. And, and uh, how anybody could possibly deny that impact of this, considering the, the vague language that they used regarding, quote, reproductive decisions. Uh, a decision to change your sex will, it, it will absolutely sterilize one. Any, any woman who wants to, you know, have a fake phallus fashion for her and go through surgery, she's never going to bear children. Any male who wants to remove his, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, genitalia is, is going to be obviously sterilized. So these are decisions that are there making regarding their own reproductive health and their own reproductive decisions, then therefore they can make their mind up without parental involvement. And they made it very, very specific uh, about that. And uh, so so it is about much more than abortion. It is much more than about being, you know, transing, the transing of Ohio and the transing of America. It's about parents not being able to have a role in their young, pre-formative, you know, children's uh, lives, and that's the rea- preformative in terms of their their frontal lobes, like we talked about uh, in their lives. I want to ask you, Mehet Cook from uh, Protect Women Ohio, also about this ad. Um, there's an ad that has been put out by the Pro Issue One group, um, and it's supported by ACL, the ACLU, United for Reproductive Rights, and it's um, it's filled with a lot of misinformation that PWL Protect Women Ohio are going to great lengths to point out. As a matter of fact, they're you guys are doing more than just pointing it out yourselves. You're talking to doctors about what uh, what is wrong with this ad. Can you tell us about it? So the ad that was just aired on Monday specifically states that women don't have access to abortion. False. Absolutely false. Ohio law permits abortion up until 22 weeks for any reason. Now, it also contains exceptions if you're going beyond 22 weeks, if there is a substantial or irreversible harm to the mother. So for them to say that women don't have access to abortion is ludicrous. The other claim that they're making is if a woman is in an emergency situation, they won't have access to health care. Look at the doctors on Protect Women Ohio We live in America. We live in Ohio. I have never heard of a claim that a doctor will not support a woman who's in an emergency. This is absolutely fear-mongering. It's false. And we should be extremely disgusted by this type of claim. They have continued to lie and talk about a state, a, a delusional state that they live in that doesn't allow abortion, that doesn't protect women. The truth is, Ohio has an abortion law. It allows it for 22 weeks. Ohio has doctors across the state that perform emergency medical procedures. And now we have doctors on record stating they do so. What they're trying to do here, Bob, is hide the fact that this is the most extreme 
Amendment, an attack on families in America. So they're tossing anything that they can toss, including scaring individuals into thinking they don't have access to abortion. That is just false. Yeah, I was uh, reading the comments from uh, Dr. Michael Parker, who was somebody featured in one of the PWL responses to this, who said, we cannot let the medical misinformation in the recent ad from proponents of Issue 1 stand. Their assertion that treatment for ectopic pregnancies and miscarriage is in danger without the amendment. It could not be further from the truth. These conditions are entirely different from elective abortion. I can care now for my patients with these conditions, just as I always have. So, you know, to me, it says a lot about the fact that uh, they have to lie. It says a lot that they have to lie in order to generate and drum up support for something that without those lies, if just given the choice between, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, abortion on demand without any, you know, restrictions at any time uh, during the pregnancy, that's not something that the people would support. The people of Ohio would, would of Ohio would absolutely reject this unless they are, and I think you used the right word, fear mongered or deceived into thinking that this is much, much more than that. Well, the ACLU and the transgender groups out there are lying, and Ohioans, when they see. They can't access abortion. They can't go through emergency care. I mean, that's scary. That's scary to anybody. So I understand how people are feeling today, but I also need everybody to go talk to their doctors, to follow Protect Women Ohio, to ask fundamental basic questions, and to know that this is deceitful. And the truth is, it's our parental rights. It's our access to health care. It's so much more that's being under attack today. It has nothing to do with the ad and the fear-mongering that they're peddling out there. So I'm extremely disgusted. But this is what the ACLU does. They try to peddle fear and push lies because that is what they win with. That's their tool in their toolbox, their only tool. We have the truth next to our side. We have the law next to our side. And we have the medical community that is stating this is not true. Mahek Cook is our guest. She is a spokesperson for Protect Women Ohio. You know, since PWO kind of got started, I've had people asking me, what is Protect Women Ohio? Can I join? And I don't know how to answer that. I know they can support. There are donations that can be made, but people want to know, is it an organization? Is it membership? Or is it just a leadership group? What is PWO, and how can anybody listening right now who says, yeah, I'm with them, how can they be a part of you? So Protect Women Ohio, I would go to the website. I would start following on social media. And if you want to join, send an email. We'll try and figure out what area you're in and give you support, whether it's yard signs or having a speaker out if you are open to having a big gathering. Uh, And the other push truly is funding. You know this better than anybody, and your listeners saw it. Mm -hmm. The ACLU has deep pockets. They're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars against us, and it's coming from across America So anybody that is willing to support, your support goes directly to yard signs, television, and truly getting our message across so that we can share the truth. We need more help. We need more people involved in this movement. And the the smallest thing you could do is just join us on social media and reshare the truth because that will spread like wildfire. Grassroots means everything to us. So last thing then, Mahek, I'm glad you brought up yard signs and other things, because, again, I think we, those of us who are pro-life, and by the way, I I did see something else, too, that the language is kind of being 
altered a little bit to really emphasize and reflect um, the seriousness of this from pro-life to pro-baby. Can you speak to that real quick? So there is some discussion. I believe it is pending with the Secretary of State's office, and we'll have to leave it to Frank LaRose and whether the judicial system gets involved to further clarify. I think our response to this is we're, we're deeply, deeply upset about the misinformation, but respect the Secretary of State's office. So we hope that the language reflects what the amendment says so that there's no doubt regardless of the false advertising out there. Okay, yeah, because there's a, there, there's a story even on NBC. Republicans are trying to find a new term for pro-life to stay off, stave off more electoral losses and that they're trying to move toward pro-baby to emphasize, obviously, the, you know, the defenseless nature of the babies that are, uh, that are involved here. So I just thought we might ask on that. But, but back to the issue. Uh, those of us who are pro-life and pro-baby, um, you know, we're wondering what can we do to make sure that we don't fall behind. They got a huge head start in advertising when it came to the special election on August 8th. Uh, they got a huge start in advertising. They got a, they, they bought a lot more media. They had a lot more visibility and road signs and so forth. So is PWO working with any other groups to consolidate and pool resources so that they can push back and make sure that there is a much more visible public effort uh, in opposing issue one? Yes, there are, um, between Ohio Right to Life, Cleveland Right to Life, Cincinnati, I mean, all the Right to Life organizations, the Catholic Bishop, I mean, you name it, there are so many groups that have come together to support Protect Women Ohio. They are an, they're not isolated. We have a lot of support, but it truly is also just one-off donors that have said, I believe in this cause. I want to protect my children. So that's where the grassroots is so important because organizations can only do so much given the money that they have. And when you go up against the largest transgender organization in America and the ACLU, I mean, they're just printing money at this point and fear-mongering, so they have deep pockets. Yeah, they do indeed, and that's uh, that's where it uh, it's going to be up to all of us to try to combat that in any way that we can, whether it be through donations or, again, through getting yard signs and more. Mahek Cook from uh, Protect Women Ohio. The website is exactly what it would you would seem. It would seem protectwomenohio.com. Go there. There's a donate button at the top. There's a way to learn more about how to volunteer and what you can do to help protect uh, uh, women and protect babies and protect parental rights, which is exactly what the, the bigger picture is here by defeating issue one on november 7th mehek thank you for the work that you and everybody at pwo are doing and we will of course be in touch with you uh as we get closer and closer in this in this campaign look forward to it thank you so much thank you so much we appreciate it very much yeah that michigan question that i asked her earlier you should understand a little bit more there's an article in the cincinnati inquirer that i that i read about this um michigan along with Kentucky, California, Kansas, Montana, and Vermont, offer a roadmap on how to protect access to abortion in a world where the U.S. Supreme Court has sent decisions about this procedure back to the states. We studied what happened there in Michigan, said Kelly Copeland, executive director of Pro-Death Ohio. They call it pro-choice, but I'm being more realistic, which backs the reproductive rights measure. We also looked at what happened in Kansas and Kentucky. But Ohio abortion opponents say Michigan offers the real cautionary tale of how far reproductive rights proponents will go if the state constitution lets them. 
Michigan abortion rights advocates are now calling for insurance to cover abortion. They want insurance policies, health insurance plans, to cover elective abortions at any time for any reason. I can't even begin to fathom what that's going to do to insurance premiums for everybody else to cover something as barbaric and indefensible as this. They're calling for fewer regulations on abortion to make it even more dangerous for both mother and child and the repeal of parental consent requirements for minors seeking abortions. This is Michigan. They've done it already. What what Ohio is trying to do, the pro-deathers in Ohio are trying to do on November 7th, and this is the next step for them. And that's the path Ohio is going to be on if we don't stop this. We are seeing in their own words what is happening in Michigan and what could happen here and what will happen here if this amendment passes. That's from Amy Natos, the uh, uh, spokesperson for PWO, or another spokesperson. We, what Ohio can learn from this or uh, about this from its northern neighbor is, um, is very, very important. You want to see what it is we are facing. Go look at the way uh, abortion is handled now in that state up north, and then tell me um, what you are willing to do to stop it from happening here. All right, 1054, quick time out. Right back. Always. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Frantz on AM 1420, The Answer. Our third and final hour of the broadcast. As a matter of fact, it's our final hour of the week. is underway now. It's the 15th morning of the ninth month, year of our Lord, 2023. Thanks so much for being with us. I've got a guy online who says that the average salary of a UAW worker is 79,101 salaries range from a low of 69,380 to a high of 90 uh 60 $90, that's just salaries that doesn't count i believe overtime because we all know you know factories uh, oftentimes uh, you know will hold guys over for two and they'll end up working a ton of hours and a ton of money and it's really really great pay I don't have a verified link for this. This is just something somebody posted on my Facebook feed because I posted a message on Facebook that says 46% pay hike, 32-hour week, but paid for 40, GTFO HWTS. And if you know shorthand online, you know what that means. It basically says, get out of here. No way, no how is there any justification for that kind of a new contract demand. 
But this is what unions do. Not all, but oftentimes, and some, this is what they do. Outrageous demands. And when we're talking about something that is a necessity for all Americans, which, of course, is what they produce, cars, what this is going to do to the automobile market is just impossible to, to imagine. And it's even harder to defend. If the average salary is 70... Let me... I don't do this often because I don't like to expose my lack of math skills on live radio. But I will admit and acknowledge I was an English major, not a math major. But let me just try this. If this is accurate, 79,101 times 0.46%, that's 36,386. So... 36386 plus the original 79101 means the new average salary for a factory worker at one of the big three automaker shops is $115,487. I hope the hell that's not what they're doing. I hope that's not what they're holding out for. What is that going to do to the cost of a car or truck that you need to drive for your family? Or for your job. What is that going to do, honestly? I, I can't even fathom. I mean, they, they didn't come out saying, we are not being treated fairly, we want cost of living raises, plus this, that, or the other perk. You know, you know typical contract negotiations, the way they've gone in the past. 46, that's almost half of their salary on top of it again. I can't get my brain around that. And then, by the way, we want four-day work weeks, but not four tens. To make it 40, four eights to make it 32. But you got to pay us for 40. Somebody make that make sense to me. How much, Seth, Seth, go ahead and tell me what you typed here so I don't have to read it. Seth, uh, yeah. I just, I, I Googled real quick how much does an assembly line worker make in Michigan? Okay. Uh, the average assembly line worker salary in Michigan is 46115 as of August 27, 2023. But the range typically falls between forty one and 52000 a year. Okay. So that's the average. Okay. That's for a little an assembly bit, line worker. Average. Yeah. That's for a regular assembly line worker. Okay. Yes. And, and I would say to that, let me, let me do the same thing that I just did here with my little phone calculator. For, give me that number again. 46 what? Um, the, the average. Uh, average is 46,115. 46,115 times 0.46. That's 21,212. So 21,212 plus the 46,000. Yeah. So we're talking an average then of becoming 67,000 to be just an average, average assembly line worker. That's that's not a specialist. That's not a skilled tradesman. That's not a tool maker uh, you know, or designer. We're talking about just the assembly line worker. Every piece that comes in front of them must be tightened. That's his job. And again, is it fun? No. Is it hard? Yeah. Is it blue collar? Yeah. Is it, is it, is it, you know, average middle class American man or woman? Yeah. And do I support them? Yeah. But is, are they easily replaceable? Yeah. By either somebody else who wouldn't mind working for $46,000 or with responsible and reasonable raises added in or by a machine. I mean, how much does automation factor into this? 
there are some of these things that, quite frankly, just, you know, again, while I respect the blue-collar nature and the hard, I've, I've, I don't want to go through my history again, but I've worked in enough factories and enough blue-collar jobs in my life to know what they're about, and it sucks. I wouldn't want to do it on a regular basis, but I would do it for a fair wage, and, and asking for 46% on top of a fair wage is just ridiculous. And to hold the U.S. transportation system hostage in the process... To make, you know, to, to have that much of a dramatic impact on the American economy because we're mad because the CEOs are making record salaries and profits, it takes a hell of a lot. It's a, it's apples and rocket ships. If you want to compare an assembly line worker to a CEO, to get to that level is extraordinarily difficult. And the responsibilities for the people at that level are beyond your wildest comprehensions. Those are not easily replaceable. The screw tightener is, and, 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 I, and I say that again with all respect for hard, I mean, again, I'm going to go through my father being a roofer, a union roofer for his entire life, and I can tell you just tales of misery that his body endured for, through, the, uh, through the years for that. And the times that I have worked in that same type of setting in a radiator factory, working at Yellow Freight in Brecksville uh, uh, on the docks, uh, all of the things that I've done, I'm blue-collar work. Believe me, I have nothing but respect for it, but this is insane. This is insane, what they are doing. To ask for those things is just ridiculous. I will side with management. You know what I You know what I compare this to? It's different because people will say, oh, I you pick a side between millionaires and billionaires. But I think of every time there's a baseball strike or a threat of an NFL Players Association strike, you know, and they they want more because the union, or excuse me, because the owners of the league are making billions, and they are making millions, and they want to get closer to the owners' billions. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, when you when you work long enough and build your fortune to the point where you can afford to buy an NFL team, and you have that kind of money, um, you have done some extraordinary things. Um, it's a business owner that takes a risk on hanging out a shingle. A business owner, a corporation owner that has shareholders to answer to, these kinds of people have more responsibilities than you can even imagine. And the difficulty it takes to get there is, is more than you can even imagine. They are the ones who worked it to get to where they are. And they deserve to make the profits that come with it. If you are a laborer and you are being paid exceedingly well, I'm not going to tell you you deserve to make as much as the owner. You're his employee. You work for him and you, you, and you get rewarded handsomely. Where did we get into this idea that the player has to have the same, um, Income, it'd be in the same income bracket or the same pay raise, um, structure as the owner of the, as the owner of the company, whether it be leagues and sports or whether it be auto workers and CEOs. I mean, no. There's a hierarchy for a reason. The guy pushing the broom at the end of the shift, cleaning up the, the shop floor, shouldn't make as much as the skilled auto technician that is making that car run. The guy that's the skilled auto technician making that car run or car run should not be making as much as the 
designers of the vehicles, the engineers who actually make these things happen and come up with the tools and the things necessary. And the guys who do that shouldn't be making as much as the guys who put the entire thing together and the guys who run the show in the corner offices. This is not... But this is what happened. Unions started out as a great thing to give an opportunity. Not to give an opportunity. That's poor phrasing. Unions started out as a great vehicle for making sure that the hardworking man was not exploited by management. To unionize and come together to say, we will not allow you to do this to us because of this unfair labor practice or that one or this one or that one, that's the good that a union does. And when they started out, it was worthwhile and noble. What they have become, though, which are vehicles of corruption and greed in so many different levels, is a different story altogether. And what they're asking for right now does not land under the category or does not get filed under the category of fair labor practices. This is abject greed, and they are holding the U.S. economy by way of the transportation market hostage as 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 a cudgel. Um, it's just, it's impossible to justify. All right. I'm sorry. That's a bit more of a rant than I wanted to go on. Let's go to the phones. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five. My friend Khalid Namar is on the line. Khalid is also a radio host on AM 1420. The answer rising the tides on Sunday nights. Hey, Khalid, how are you, my friend? I'm well, I'm well, Bob. I, I really enjoyed, uh, that last rant of yours. I don't know if you heard about Najee Harris of the Steelers. I did not. He, what? he won- he wants a running backs only bargaining unit because he feels the running backs are being phased out of the game and not as significant, even though they endure a lot of physical wear and tear. So he wants to start a running backs only union. Uh, yeah, they all feel that way. I'm not surprised. Well, I shouldn't say I'm not surprised by him. I don't. I'm not surprised it's being done because running backs for the last several years have had that complaint that they are never getting a good contract after their first contract. They're getting the rookie deal for the first three years, yeah. then they're getting a modest increase after that, and then they're considered washed, and then they don't get anything after. So they want to get front loaded, heavy, you know, heavier pay at the front end uh, of their deals because they're the only position that's being treated that way. It's an interesting yeah. argument. Yeah, it is. And but but this is how pay structures work. This is how things work in terms of uh jobs, positions, management. It's, it's an interesting topic and a topic and I'll probably cover something more on this on my show Rising Tides on Sunday nights. Uh, I would listen to him. Sunday. I would listen to him. I would listen to his argument. I'm not saying mm-hmm. I would immediately capitulate, but there's an argument to me because j- just for those who don't understand it, Khalid, um, mm-hmm. yeah, there, there are there are minimum salaries and there are rookie salaries and there are caps on things and you can only make so. What what their argument is for those who don't follow football, the running back position used to be one of the most valued and treasured positions in the league when the league was especially a running back heavy league. It was before mm-hmm. it became the you know the passing you know uh, uh, machine that it is now. But anyway, they used to be rewarded handsomely. I mean, it's you know that's the position of Jim Brown, you know O.J. Simpson, Barry Sanders, Walter Payton, some of the greatest to ever play. This, these were feature marquee positions. In recent years. They've become devalued as it's been determined by by the leagues or the league, I should say, and by uh, by executives and and general managers that you know one running back is just about as good as the other. 
they're almost interchangeable because we don't rely on them to be the workhorses the way we used to. So, therefore, we don't necessarily need to pay big dollars to uh, a good running back when we can get one who's just slightly below him in ability and get you know the bargain the bargain rookie contract prices. And so the league though has contract uh, levels um, for based on you know years of service, and you get a first year uh, you know rookie contract that has a cap on it. And so basically they're saying the wide receiver cap and the running back cap and the lineman cap and the linebacker cap and the quarterback cap should be different because we're all being treated differently when it comes time for our next contract. I would listen to his argument. I would listen to what they have to say there and see if there isn't some fairness, you know, fundamental unfairness here, which I am saying now, Khalid, to prove I am not anti-union and I'm not anti-labor. If there's a legitimate argument to be made that there should be positions should be treated differently when it comes to salary caps, let's have those conversations. I think that's very different than what we're seeing here, though. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, and then I, I hope no no NFL player wants to negotiate playing uh, uh, eight games and being played for 16. Then I think that'll be <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we go to look too far. <laughs> well, and you know, in, but, in reality, yeah. in reality, this is a case where I think management screwed the players because they added a 17th game, but there's not a there's not another paycheck. I mean, there is because they each get a game check. But they added a 17th game, and whatever your salary was, your salary was. I mean, if you were making, yeah. just to make it easy, a million dollars for 16 games, and your paycheck was divided, one million divided by 16, now it's one million divided by 17. They didn't increase the pay uh, commensurate with the increase in in, uh, in in workload, not to mention when you do that every year, it's more wear and tear on the body, and thus a, 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 a lesser earning potential over the lifetime of an athlete's you know, body. So, you know, those are, those are legitimate labor questions and concerns. But, um, but, but you're right. I mean, you know, the idea that I'm going to play eight and you pay me for 16 or 17 or whatever is, 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 is theater of the absurd. And that's what the UAW is doing here. Yeah. And, and I definitely am going to try to cover more of this out. Hopefully it ends very soon, but I'm going to definitely too. want to cover this, uh, on our show. Uh, Sunday nights, I'm going to be talking to young Republicans because what is the future of the Republican Party? What is the future of the conservative movement for people under the age of 40? Because on our side, unfortunately, there isn't the youth involvement as there is on the left. So I'm going to be talking to Astrid Beulah, young Republicans, uh, President David Thomas, Dakota Sawyer is going to be on, Colin Jackson is going to be on. Former GOP uh, outreach uh, in, the, in, the, in the black community. He's going to be on. So we're going to just be talking to young men, very young in some cases of Dakota. I think he's like 19, and we're going to just talk about the future of the conservative movement. What's going to happen after spring chickens like you and me are uh, <laughs> <laughs> sitting out on the on the front porch, and you know. Uh, when we're not as active as we are now, what's going to happen to the movement and what's going to happen to our country as a result? I think it's it's an important issue to address. I do too. Completely agree, and uh, and I'm glad you said uh, sitting on the porch on a swing as opposed to being wheeled down the hall of the of the home because that's kind of how I feel sometimes. Um, 
Khalid Namar, that sounds like a great show, and it's really good that you are talking to the young, you know, conservative-minded leaders because that's exactly what it's going to take, that next generation. Every group I speak in front of, I look out and I see a lot of the seniors and I see a lot of the uh, boomers and I see a lot of the Gen Xers like myself, and I think to myself, where are the millennials? Where are the Gen Zers? We've got to get them involved, and uh, and that's a great thing that you're going to do on Sunday night. Yeah, yeah, and I just spoke at Central State on Constitution. Uh, it wasn't Constitution Day, but it was the Constitution Day the discussion that I had debate uh, with an LC, ACLU guy on on the Fourteenth Amendment and affirmative action. And I I go there so I can get in front of these young pre law students because they won't hear from someone like me, and they also may have some of the same thoughts. And I was on a black campus in the in the nineteen eighties, so I know what they're hearing. So I'd love to make that trek down there to Central State and Wilberforce to talk to those young kids. And I'm going to be going back on a semi-regular basis. And I have some other talks coming up to getting in front of young people because they have to understand what this country is, what it is not, that uh, what our republic is about. And they have to learn how to fight for it because if not, we're going to lose it. So we all of us have to do our part to get in front of young people galvanize the young movement and find out what the agenda going forward is. It's not about climate change. It's about our constitution. It's about saving our Republic and maintaining our Republic and also promoting the value system that is going to support those, those systems. Because right now in college, they are, we know what they're learning in college. Uh, primarily they're learning destructive values that are undermining our system. So it's up to us to go out and continue to fight and let them know what has held this republic together over the last couple of hundred years and what's going to destroy it and i and that's my concern when when dan messina and i my good friend went to see bernie sanders a few years ago there were so many young people there because socialism and communism is appealing to college kids and that was disturbing to me to see 20 year olds 21 year olds there but when we go to our events there's not a lot of 20 21 22 year olds there right. that is disturbing to me Yep, very well said. Colleen DeMar, you're um, your energy man. You're 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 a tireless worker. I love that you go out and give so many presentations and speeches. And I love Rising Tides as well. Sunday night on WHK. Tune into that, Khalid. Thank you, my brother. Have a great weekend. Thanks, brother. Eleven twenty seven, back with more calls right after. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France of the answer. Okay, it's 11.35. We've got time for just a few phone calls here before we are done. I want somebody to explain this one to me because I just cannot just uh, abide by it. Uh, hold on a second. We've got to connect that little button to that little button. Here we go. Can a man become a woman? Um, <laughs> that's, I can end it right there. How, how long does it take to yell, No! Or, of course not. Or, what's the matter with you? Or, this is a very dangerous game that they're playing. No, men and women are separate. They cannot just change your sex. I mean, why was this so complex? In my opinion, you have a man, you have a woman. I, I, I I think part of it is birth. Can the man give birth? No. No, although they'll come up with some. If Kamala Harris answered that question that way, we would go nuts. We'd go nuts on her. If she answered that question that way, um, 
oh, you got men and you got women. And, you know, I think when part of it is birth and, you know, men can't give birth. That's not the question. Can a man become a woman? That's simple. If you think yes, because you're friends with Caitlyn Jenner, then say yes. But if you think no, because it's obvious and clear that no, there are differences between men and women, then say so and have some backbone. This is the kind of stuff that gives me pause. The transing of America is devastating lives and families. The transing of America, the belief that little boys can become girls and little girls can become boys, is being pushed by online influencers and leftists all across the nation. Teachers, counselors, nut jobs all. And here's his chance to say, of course not. Can a man become a woman? Um. <laughs> okay, um, where are we going first here? Um, we'll go to um, Sally and Bria. Sally, go ahead. Hi, Bob. We need to send a copy of Dr. Miriam Grossman's book on transgendering um, to President Trump so that he can be educated about all these issues. But the reason I was calling... Uh, he's educated. Regarding... He's, afraid to ma- he's afraid to take a stance that's going to upset Caitlyn Jenner, who's a big supporter of his. He's, he's afraid that, that Brucey would be texting him middle fingers the minute his interview was over if he said, no, a man can't be a woman, because he can't say that to her. He can't, or to him, I say, should say. He can't say that to, to Caitlyn Jenner, so he's playing that middle, you know, that fence-sitting middle road type thing, and it's disgusting. But I'm sorry, go ahead. He needs to take a stand. Regarding the electric cars, I refuse to buy one even if I could have afforded it, which I can't. But my point was that now Dennis Quaid stars in a film about our vulnerable electric grid. So the elites might not be driving their fancy cars, electric cars and trucks, if we have a random corona mass ejection, a sunburst, which the odds of occurring are 12% each decade. And also bad actors like China, as we know, are looking to sabotage the grid. We've been lucky so far, but who knows how long it'll continue. We need to wake up. Well, even if they don't sabotage, and thank you, Sally, for the call, even if they don't sabotage the grid, and you're right, that would be a great way to grind us to a halt. If all of our ability, our mobility, and our military strength is tied to the electrical grid, and all they have to do is attack the grid, then we're screwed. And yes, there are things like EMPs that can knock out all types of engines uh, as well, but uh, in anything that is electronic as well, that is true. Uh, the electrical grid going down on its own is an even bigger threat. We can't even keep the freaking uh, lights on in, in hot states during the summer because they can't even handle all of the air conditioning uh, um uh, usage. That's why they have rolling brownouts and turning lights off for eight or eight to ten hours a day, turning power off for eight to ten hours a day, just because they can't handle it. Try now adding millions and millions of gas-powered cars replaced by uh, electric cars, and tell me how the grid can handle that. Uh, thank you, uh, Sally. Sean is in Bath. Hi, Sean. You're on the air. Go right ahead. Hi, hi, Bob. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Good. Um, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. To your point there, but yeah, the, the electric car thing. It's clearly a false economy. I mean, most of this, most, most electricity that we use is generated by fossil fuels anyway. Uh, if 
if you have if you have an electric car out there on the road and you have to keep one of these charges, it's going to cost you more to run that car than it would to run a gasoline car. Not to mention the fact that when the batteries packed uh, are depleted or worn out and yeah. no longer take a charge, it, 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 it's uh, economically uh, un, unfeasible, really, to uh, repair the car because the battery pack costs more than the car. Exactly. But um, to the UAW, um, uh, it, I thought this was funny. And, and, you know, Biden's getting his just desserts, and so are the, so are the union people here uh, for their um, endorsement of Biden in 2020. And, uh, you know, it's very clear Joe Biden screwed the economy up. You know, the supposedly American Recovery Act, blah, 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 spending, printing trillions of dollars, paying people not to work, flooding the economy, making, making every dollar that we've got uh, worth that much less was a bad idea. Uh, and as a result, it caused inflation, which then caused the Treasury to have to raise interest rates. And here we are today. So everything costs more. It costs more to borrow, blah, blah, blah. There was an interview that I read. Mr. Sean Fain, he's the president of the UAW, who's back in the spring. And and at that point, even then, they were badgering him about an endorsement for Biden in 2020. And he was, they were, the UAW has, was at that time, and they still are withholding their endorsement. And the, the sticking point was this wage, supposed wage issue with the, the electric vehicle. Well, you know, electric, these electric vehicles, you know, most of these, Parts are obviously sourced from overseas. Um, uh, they are less in, in many. Hey, respects, hey Sean, I'm going to need more, you to get. To, I'm going to need you to get to the uh, end line here because I got a lot of other calls in only a couple more minutes. <clears throat> okay. Well, anyway, Fane stated he was asked about the endorsement why they were withholding it. He gave his reason, mm-hmm. and he said that basically we need to be paid more for these electric things. We need to share in this quote wealth. Okay, this this generation of all this this printing of all this money for this green energy stuff. He Then he was asked about a Trump presidency. He said, oh, another Trump presidency would be disastrous. So I took it upon myself to call his office to see if I could get an answer as to why. By what metric would it be disastrous? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the Democrats have screwed what, 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 the unions what, what, what over here the, for the last... What do you expect the response I couldn't get, would be? never got an answer. No, I, I know, I, I know. But, but, but do you have an idea of what his response would be? Oh, it, this is just the, it's the rah, rah, rah rhetoric. It's just the rah, rah, rah rhetoric. But if you go back 30 years, ever since NAFTA, the Democrat Party hits... I mean, the deciding vote on NAFTA was Tom Sawyer out of Summit County here. And, it, you know, the... The Democrat Party, this union alliance, it makes no sense for so, people. So, so for in other words, so the, the disaster, so, so the point, the reason I wanted you to, to know what you were going to say, and thank you for the call, Sean, uh, is because they cannot say that it would be disastrous for any reason. They cannot give you a metric. They have none. It's just that as bad as things are because of what they sold out uh, to Biden and endorsing Biden, as bad as they are, that's still our bread and butter, and we cannot we cannot go away from them. And that's why he would say such a thing about Trump. Thank you, Sean, for the call. Let me get to Laura in Wadsworth. Laura, go right ahead. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, just qu- quick, quick comment on Trump. Um, I've always been a supporter of his, but I think Satan has taken over his brain. <clears throat> very troubling. Um, let me go into my topic. Uh, 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.